What's up, guys? Mitch Pelkey back again with another episode of Pelk Talk today, joined by the legend, Paul Carpenter. Legend, Paul, I like this, doing? man. We're pumping <laughs> tires. Pump, pumping tires. Yes, sir. How you doing, Paul? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, man. I'm uh, I'm hanging in. I, I've had I've had my days during this quarantine. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not one of these guys who who sugarcoats it. I've had some peaks. I've had some valleys. I found some some hidden gold and treasures, and then I've uh, I stared at the wall, going stir crazy. You, you sick of it yet? Yeah, yeah, I am. Look, I'm I'm a very positive, you know, optimistic type person who tries to find some silver linings. And there's been a lot of lot of good in this. I, I think for humanity, we've been able to take a step back and, and and really kind of hone in on some some relationships and spend some time with some people, whether it's virtually on the phone, connecting with your family more. There's some good stuff here, but at the end of the day, we're all like driven people who like to get stuff done and like to be around people physically. So I think that's the, the part that I struggle with the most. Yeah, sweet. Let's dive right into it. Uh, start from the beginning, growing up in Yorktown, New York. Yeah. Hotbed for lacrosse. What was that like? Man, it was, it was awesome. It was like something out of a, I don't know, I get the documentary if you watched uh, – you know, something from Canada hockey related or Texas football or Indiana hoops. Yorktown had that vibe. Like, it was so cool, Mitch. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was a little kid, my parents grew up in New York City. My dad was like an old school Italian guy uh, who, you know, wasn't really involved in sports too much. One of those guys who never missed a dinner with his mom on Sundays, even as he got yep. older. Yeah, just old the same school, way. You know? Yeah, my mom's you know, the my, same exact way. Yeah, so old school. You get it, man. My my dad's name's uh, Lawrence Lorenzo, and uh, you know I have uncles named Carmine, Frankie, Joey, and Fonzo. So like <laughs> that side was super super Italian, and then my mom actually is a hundred percent Irish and was born in England, and she moved over to the states when she was really little. So they met in the Bronx at like fourteen. It was my mom's only boyfriend in her life was my dad my dad's only girlfriend was was my mom and then ended up moving upstate to a town called Yorktown and they had no clue about this lacrosse crazy type community which um obviously benefited me it benefited my brothers and and we had a like built-in culture of like driving to be great and, and, and wanting to be around lacrosse 24-7. And we didn't have, like, so many things at our disposal back then, Mitch. It was different. Like, we didn't have summer travel lacrosse. Like, we were in the backyard playing all the time and just, like, making up games on the fly. But the stick was in our hands all the time, which was, which was really cool. And, and we became really creative and really didn't think of the game, like, in a box. Um, but the, the thing that I think separated that town – was I was always into to pro sports. I watched a lot of football and, you know, and hoops and hockey. I'd watch anything. But my idols actually were Yorktown cross players, like guys that were 10 years older than me. I was a ball boy for the team when I was in fifth grade. And, like, I would look up to these guys who were going off to Johns Hopkins and Syracuse. And, like, that's who I wanted to be. I didn't want to be, like, Joe Montana or John Elway or – or any pro basketball player, as much as I loved Michael Jordan, I was realistic. I wasn't going to be an NBA hoops player, yeah. uh, but I didn't even want to be. You know, honestly, like if you asked me a question when I was in fifth grade, do you want to be a 
Division one college lacrosse star, or you want to be a professional athlete in the NBA or the NFL? I, I wouldn't have hesitated for a second. I wanted to play lacrosse, and, and really? the community of Yorktown did that. Yeah, for sure. That's cool to hear. I, I like that. Uh, so you hit on that your dad is Italian and my mom's Italian. I don't think the fans honestly realize what that's like with, with the Sunday dinners being like a 10-course no. meal. You know, what was yeah. it like for you growing up? Was it, was it Sundays or, or a full-time family days? A hundred percent. So my grandmother, Mary, my dad's mom, she was like four foot 11. And my dad was a school teacher <laughs> in the South Bronx for 32 years. He was such a mama's boy that like on Friday after school, he would drive um, right to his mom's apartment in the Bronx, pick her up, bring her up north to Yorktown for the weekend. She would like cook all weekend. And we'd eat a ton on Saturday. We'd eat a ton on Sunday. And we'd eat these early dinners on Sunday. And I remember my grandmother would just literally make like an extra pot of sauce and meatballs. Yep. <laughs> keep it, literally keep it, not even put it in Tupperware. Keep it in the, pot. In the saucepan, yeah, in the pot and put it in the fridge. The and fridge, then yep. we were just savages and all week we would just attack the meatballs and leftover You know, city. we'd always say, Grandma, like as we got bigger, we're like, Grandma, you gotta make more. She's like, Oh, I'll do it, I'll do it. Like she she could hardly even see the top of the the <laughs> saucepan. It was classic. But yeah, those those dinners were I had my uncles, I had my uncle Carmine. This guy was so old school, man. He had a black Cadillac and he'd wear a fedora and in the uh in the summertime, you would just wear the, you know, the, the, the white uh, tank top t-shirt, right? Yeah. yeah, and then he would he would he would drive up into Yorktown. <laughs> one hand on the wheel. Up, one hand on the wheel on a black Cadillac, and literally he had a dog named Missy, a little Chihuahua, on his shoulder while he was driving. I, I can't make this stuff up, man. This is fact. <laughs> I like that. It reminds me of my family a lot. So, so you hit on growing up that you were a big lacrosse player. Did you play any other sports? You know, I played, uh, I played football most of, most of my life up until I think sophomore year in high school. I had a, um, a cyst in my left arm and my left humerus, which was like hollow, and I kept breaking that. Um, I broke it like three times before the end of 10th grade. So I stopped playing football. I wish, you know, I wish I didn't have to stop playing football, but – you know, I love lacrosse so much that I, I just didn't want to miss out on, on any opportunity to, to play in the spring. And I think the big difference for me was I was like sleigh riding my sophomore year in that winter. And uh, I broke my arm again. And then we had lacrosse tryouts for varsity. Back then, like a lot of freshmen didn't play, play varsity. It wasn't even a given for sophomores. It was just a, a different era. You, if you were you know, if you were at a higher level sophomore year, maybe you'd you'd get a shot to try out. So I tried out and I made the team, but like I physically just wasn't there. And I just didn't want to have that kind of injury again. And I was small too, as a sophomore, I was 135 pounds. Wow. I was getting, I was getting tooled around in terms of just my, my physical strength wasn't there. And I had the busted arm. Um, so, so that was just, for me, it was a priority just to kind of shut everything else down it wasn't because I had like this single sports mind all my buddies were playing football and I missed it so you said you attended Yorktown High School what, what kind of moment was like that for you like you were really like oh like this is it this is my time to show with, with, with Yorktown uh, being being a real legacy for lacrosse yeah so my sophomore year we won the state championship my junior year we won the state championship and my senior year 
-hmm. So we won three state uh, championships in a row. And, and that was cool. It was the only time that's ever happened in Yorktown where there's been back-to-back, -back, let alone a, you know, a three-peat. So being part of that was, was super cool. And we just had so many guys on our team. Um, the competition in practice was just – it was harder than games because we had all these dudes who were – you know, our defense, my sophomore year, we had a, a guy who went to Loyola and started as a freshman. Um, we had a first-team All-American who went to Johns Hopkins. Uh, we had a first-team All-American long-stick midfielder who went to Loyola as, as, as well. Uh, we had a four-year starter at Georgetown. So, like, uh, oh, then we had another guy from Maryland who started for four. We had five guys who were, like, four-year starters at big-time Division One schools. So we're going against these guys in practice every day, you know, and, and not to be disrespectful for some of the teams we played against. Back then it was different, too. It's like you were either a good team or, like, you know, you started lacrosse in, in ninth grade back where we were and like you got exposed and you were a bunch of scrubs, right? Just because you didn't have, you didn't have the history of playing when you were in like third, fourth grade. And we would just, we would, we'd run rough shop on those guys. And it was, it was just because the practices were just so competitive that you almost looked at like game time as, as an opportunity to, to really shine and have fun. And, and, and that was awesome. But for me, um, I just matured differently too. I mean, I, I think I always had a pretty good stick, but my sophomore year, like I said, I, I was, I was so small. I was like feeble. I wasn't, you know, I was coming off that broken armor. I was 135 pounds and I had a decent year and scored some goals, but that next year, I, I think I gained like 30 pounds. And then by my senior year, I was 185 pounds. I'll never forget. There was a guy my sophomore year on the team who was really tooling on me in practice, just physically beating me up. And he was a good player. He went off to play Division One lacrosse. And I just, I just remember, like, just feeling him, like, physically. I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm not ready for this. And I'll never forget, we had, like, an alumni game right after my senior year in high school. And I was 185 pounds. And then I started lifting, and I was stronger. And, like, he was guarding me. And it was, it was like, kind of like one of those moments that, like, hit me. I'm like, wow, man, like, I'm a, I'm a man now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this guy to the rack. And I remember, like, flipping the script and, like, physically I, I kind of abused him. Um, and and that, had, yeah, that had a lot to do with me just, just growing and getting stronger. And it was, it was a really cool moment for me because I, I, think, I think I needed that, too, because I looked at, like, that three-year journey of, of, of playing on those teams – in my sophomore year, I just, like, I physically wasn't there just because I, you know, went through puberty late and just wasn't ready. And, you know, to get that right before college, it gave me confidence. And I, you know, I started buying into to working out harder and, and lifting. And, but when we lifted back then, dude, it was totally different. Like, literally, like, you show up, you do bench press, do some <laughs> curls, maybe do some squats. But, you know, no one really knew. Like, the stuff I know as a 44-year-old, compared to what I knew as an 18-year-old. I mean, ask your dad next time what his, his workout regimens look like. Nothing like what you're doing yeah. at Ohio State. Yeah, I mean, everyone, like, if you don't have a six-pack in college now, you're kind of like a joke, right? Like, yeah. if, if you're in the locker room, like, somebody doesn't have a six-pack, it's like, what's up with this oh, guy? Oh, busting on him, for sure. Yeah. And, and it's kind of crazy you tell that story. I was talking to Rob Pinnell last week, and he had a kind of a similar story, you know. Uh, his body didn't kind of mature till late in his high school career and ended up taking that, that PG or D Deerfield. And he was like, I think I was there stick work wise, but, uh, but, but body weight and mature wise, I wasn't. So that's why I had to yeah. take that PG year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, everyone matures differently, but back then, 
And I think it's going back to that. Like you fell into a, a different recruiting life cycle. When did you commit to Ohio State? Like ninth grade? Yeah, fall of my freshman year. Yeah, fall of your freshman year. I think it's going back to to what it used to be closer to when I was when I was in high school. You know, I think you know the recruiting has kind of had some some peaks and valleys as well. And and I think coaches are learning from that. And then obviously the NCA has some some rules and regulations that have forced people to go later. But you know, if if, if someone recruited me off my freshman year, dude, I was I was 110 pounds. Like no one would have taken me. Like that's just the reality of it. So you know, knock on wood, I, I was in high school in the 90s. I mean, I wish I was young again, but, you know. Yeah. Are you, are you glad the recruiting rules have changed? Yeah, I am. I think they're at a good spot now. It's almost like a happy medium um, for the coaches because I think they get a couple years now to, to look at kids. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think September, September 1st of the junior year is, is totally acceptable. I mean, a yeah. kid has two more years of high school. I, I think that's early enough. Um, but I also think it's fair too. I think, you know, the old rules just put so much pressure on kids, man. It wasn't just about like not finding the right guys and, and, and hedging bets on, on guys who are so young. It was more, it's more the pressure of a young kid, like an eighth grader should not have in the back of his mind that in the next year, he's going to be making decisions about college, but you can't fault the kid either because like, what is he going to do? Just sit out and be like, yo, I'm not playing this game. Right? Like, you know, Ohio State can contact me, Duke, Carolina, I'm going to tell them, yo, I'll talk to you in a few years. It doesn't yeah. work that way. So, so you know, they were they were kind of at the mercy of the system, and the coaches were at the mercy of it, too. It's like no one was really at fault. Coaches had to do it because other other coaches in their, that, that community and their peers were doing it. Kids had to do it because they didn't want to miss out on an opportunity. Um, but now we're, we're in a different dilemma now, too, with this virus. I mean, if you're like a 2022 kid, who just finished your sophomore year or would have finished your sophomore year. This summer was supposed to be like massive for you. So now you have like, you have no spring season potentially in the way that it's trending. You probably, you know, won't have a, a summer unless things change. And I hope they do. I mean, no one wants to see kids on the field safely more than me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to see sports and I want to see lacrosse back ASAP, but we're going to have to do it in a, in a safe manner. And, you know, I'm not overly confident that, a lacrosse kid is going to be on the field in the, in the next few weeks. I don't, you know, you probably aren't either. So like if you're at 2022, this was your year, yeah. you know, they, they hit the pause button. So, so that group might be delayed another year. Like coaches are going to want to see these kids play, right? Like you didn't see them in the spring and you might not see them in the summer. So it's, it's tough. Yeah. And you, and you talk about pressure. I mean, I remember when I was going through the whole recruiting process, you know, 14 years old, that summer going into ninth grade, every weekend is just a tournament with college coaches and it was just like yes. so much pressure and yeah and if you messed Looking up you're like sideline oh. like oh yeah. like how many times be honest did you go in the car like feeling like you were on top of the world or like man i blew it like let's be honest you, you probably lot. had those days yeah yeah you shouldn't have been thinking about that man you should have been thinking about like you know the first first high school kiss you were gonna have yeah, but it's like funny when you look out now, because like when you go to when you go to Vail or, or, or the Placid Tournament with these guys, and you look back on the memories, and it's just like in the moment it was so much pressure, but but now it's like you've gained so many friendships through the process. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I mean that's the beauty of lacrosse too. Like I always tell people, like when I think about my like experience from the day I picked up a stick till now, it's the relationships, man. Like it's the people in the locker room who 
who made you laugh and who made you feel a certain way. Like, you know, I, I don't care how many goals you scored. I don't care how many assists you had. I don't, you know, that, that meant, meant nothing to me. Like, it, it's all about, like, the, the teammates and the players who made you feel good, made you feel part of the team. Like, I always remember, like, as a freshman, those guys who treated me really well who were seniors. Like, I aspired to be like them and to treat the kid like the, the last kid on the team who's a walk-on. You know, a, a funny story of, of, of mine was um, my best – one of my best friends in college is kid Chris McCartan. He was a uh, – he was a freshman. He was from Buffalo. He tried out for the team as a walk-on. When I tell you, Mitch, he was an awful attackman. Like, he was <laughs> so bad, so, so bad. But he had, like, big, strong legs. He was a volleyball player in high school. And, like, dude, the dude was big. He was, like, 205 with monster, like – you know, back then, like Saquon Barkley type quads, he just was was popping out of the seams. Horrendous, horrendous lacrosse player. Like to the point where, like, he would take a shot and we almost take like two bounces before the goalie. And you know, they they caught him and they had to. It was like you almost you almost felt bad for the kid from the from the standpoint, like, dude, like it's time to go, man. This is this is tough to watch. So he ended up being in my class my freshman year. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, he came up to me, like we were in like a geology recitation, a small group. And I didn't know him because he didn't stay on the team. And he wasn't recruited. So he wasn't living with the other freshmen who were on the team. And he came up to me after. He's like, hey, man, like, uh, I really want to play. I really want to play. I'm like, I'm like, so what are you thinking? Um, he's like, I don't know. Do you think I should talk to Coach Simmons and ask for another tryout? I'm like, dude, to be quite honest with you, um, you're a really big, strong kid you should try to be a defenseman. He's like, oh, really? He's like, I've never played defense. I'm like, yo, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on getting you a shaft. I ended up getting him a shaft, uh, a long pole from like the equipment manager or, or found it somewhere. I don't even know where it came up. I gave him one of my old heads too because his head was hot garbage. It was awful. It was terribly strung. <laughs> we were using leather back then too. Yeah. So I, I show up to class like the next week. I give him this stick starts playing with it. He gets in touch with Coach Simmons, who's the best guy in the history of coaches, uh, gives him another shot. He ends up making the team, struggles a lot just because he's not used to it, but he buys into it. By his sophomore year, he starts, like, really turning the corner. And then his junior year, he's a starting LSM, and his senior year, he's a captain. Like, to me, that's, that, that's one of, like, my proudest things at Syracuse. It's not like being an All-American and – winning a national championship or scoring X amount of goals. It's like, you know, I, I kind of believed in this dude early. And like, I, we just had this friendship that developed and he ended up being one of my best friends and we lived together my senior year. And he's still a guy that I, I talk to, talk to all the time. That's, that's what it's all about for me. That's awesome. So going back to the recruiting process, what was it like for you? Uh, obviously with no travel ball, like how did you kind of get seen by these division one schools? You know, so at Yorktown, we had some success. So we would play, like, late into the state playoffs into, like, the, you know, first and second week of June. And all the college recruiters would come and watch those state playoff games because you were watching, like, the best teams in New York play each other. Um, the seniors were spoken for, and, and everyone knew where they were going. But every other kid, you know, under that senior class was, was recruitable because no one was recruiting, like, sophomores or freshmen then. So if you played on a team – that was really successful, you got looks. Like you probably had two or three games that you had to capitalize. So it did put pressure on you from the standpoint that like when you were playing club, 
I mean, how many club games did you play in your ninth grade summer? Probably 30 games, right? It's terrible, yeah. Yeah, you could have a mulligan here or there. But, like, I didn't have a chance to have a mulligan. You know, yeah. if I had three games, I kind of have to shine. And, like, I, I felt pretty confident and, and, and comfortable in, in, in my ability. And uh, I, I kind of, like I, I like, I like when I'm put on a spot in, in life. You know, like, I, I would rather call a game, like, you know, one college football game that I, that I called this, this year, uh, Texas played Utah in the Alamo Bowl. I think we got close to 5 million viewers in that game. Like, I would way rather know I'm walking into a game like that and when the light turns on, it's, it's live and I got to figure it out. It's easier for me. It grabs my attention. Um, it just, it just, it's something that I can, like, focus on way more when I know the stakes are higher. And I, I feel like um, a lot of that's attributed to, to my childhood and, and watching these guys when we talk about like Yorktown and watching how they played and like those big moments. I wanted that big moment. So kids were getting recruited that way. And, and there was also this thing called the Empire State Games where where kids would play uh, in, in, in a regional summer tournament. So like there'd be like the Hudson Valley area, Long Island, Western New York, Central New York. They all come and, and play in these Empire State Games and, and coaches recruit there as well. Um, but there wasn't a lot of opportunities. And to be honest with you, uh, a, a lot of it had to do with, with people endorsing you. You know, I had, I had a couple guys older than me that were at Syracuse um, that believed in me and told Coach Simmons and Coach Desco about me. And that's kind of how it started as well. And, um, you know, when I went up there, I just – I knew that was the spot that I, that I wanted to play just because of all those guys that had come before me at Yorktown and Cuse. Yeah, so so when you stepped foot on campus that fall, did it feel like home from the start? No, definitely no. not. Like, no, I wish it did. Like, I actually – I struggled, man. Like, I struggled mentally because of being from, like, a, a, a small-knit town. Like, I was really tight with my grandparents. Like, I saw my grandparents all the time. Like, I was homesick. That's an Italian um, thing for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it was it was It was hard. Dude, I'm not gonna lie to you. I even had in the back of my mind for like a, a, a short minute, like, man, should I should I transfer to Hofstra? And, and, really? You know, yeah, yeah, right like, there. Like, I, you know, it's like an hour from Yorktown. Hofstra's on Long Island. Like, I thought about that actually for like, I didn't tell anyone. Uh, you might, you know, you might be one of the few people I told. I told my <laughs> mom and dad. My mom and dad were like, "You're crazy. Your dream was always to 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 play big time college lacrosse. Not that Hofstra's not, but to go away and do it." Um, and play for a program like Syracuse, um, it was it was tough. But I would say by the by the spring I was good. It was the fall. Like you got to understand, man. Syracuse is a, is a city. It's a great city. I love the people up there. But there are some like dreary, dreary days. Like you don't have sun for like five months. It's say it's say when Columbus after you get back yeah, from but, winter break, that January yeah. and February is brutal. No, j- j- January. How about April, man? You think you're out of the woods Still? in April's. Yeah, April's brutal there. It's brutal. It was snowing. I was talking to a boy from Cuse the other day. It was snowing in May there. And, and you know, the lack of sun, it, like, it, it could kind of wear on you a little bit. And when you're having a, a bad day, it becomes a disaster of a day. Yeah. So um, I kind of struggled with that. But the, the communal feel of, of Syracuse was a lot like Yorktown, man. The team was so close. Like, my, my favorite parts of the day were, like, the locker room 
uh, after practice. I'd hang out in there sometimes, and we didn't have any type of, like, I've been in your locker room at Ohio State. That thing is, is off the charts. Like, yeah. I probably lived there. That thing was bigger than the house <laughs> I grew up in. But, like, for, for me, I loved, like, going into the locker room after practice, and, like, we would shower. Like, we literally would just, like, rap with each other for, like, an hour, make fun of each other, like, hit each other, like, just, just doing yeah. goofy stuff putting things in people's lockers like so like it, it it felt like Yorktown so it didn't take me take me long but you got to understand man coach Simmons was the, like the, the coolest coolest coach you could ever imagine I mean he was this guy like Mitch he didn't teach me much X's and O's and he, I don't think he taught many people X's and O's stuff like he never like had a timeout and strategize like his his timeouts were more like motivational and would put his hand on you and whisper something in your ear. It's like, he was really, really powerful. This guy was a sculptor and an artist. So like, he's not your normal guy, like, like coach guy that's going to show up with a whistle and be like, let's go, let's go. (laughs) You know, he would just clap, come in, he'd tell you a story and then practice would start. And, you know, there were so many competitive people there that he didn't even have to worry about like, getting practice amped up and you wanted to win for this guy too. He was amazing, man. Like he would, he would empower his players. I'll never forget. Like my senior year, I was one of the two captains on the team. And like, he used to come up to me like during stretching and I'd be on my butt, like, you know, reaching for my ankles or something. All of a sudden he'd whisper something into my ear and he'd say powerful stuff. Like, you know, they came to watch you to play today, like stuff like that. Like when a coach tells a college kid that like, yeah. Like, or you're going to dominate today. He would say that kind of stuff, but it wasn't like, it, it, it was like in a very like calming press. So you just like felt like, Oh my God, man, if my coach believes in me and I know I can make a couple of mistakes. Like that, that's the way he was. That guy like, gave was, you so much power. Yeah. He was so masterful at like believing in people and, and making you feel like, like you belonged a, but like you were going to dominate. You were part of his group. And like, he had your back, man. Like, there were so many guys who screwed up on our team. And honestly, like a part of him almost like he, he had a soft spot for the screw ups. Luckily I didn't get in a ton of trouble. You know, we all get in a little trouble here yeah. and there, but at the end of the day, like coach Simmons, man, you had to do some really, really bad stuff. If you were going to get chucked off the team. Yeah. That's funny that you say that. Cause I was doing my research and on a podcast, uh, you said coach Simmons is the best coach you've ever had. Uh, yes. And then last, no and then earlier this week, I was talking to Brendan Curry, and I asked him what Syracuse lacrosse meant to him. He said, "Coach Simmons." So yeah. What type of what type of impact does he have on people? You know, he's just he's such an amazing person. So he was a professor at Syracuse too in the arts. Like he had sculpting classes, and like he's just he's so well read. Never talks about lacrosse. Like when I when I'm going to his office, like we wouldn't talk about lacrosse. He'd have a magazine. He'd be like, "Hey, bring this home and read it." And you know, it'd be about like African art or his time in in, in South America uh, th- that he would spend during the summer. Like he wasn't one of these guys that would watch lacrosse film. Like he he didn't believe in that. He he was very artistic and he coached he coached players that way. So like. When you look at the game and you look at the game at the highest level right now, so like Brennan Curry's dad, Todd, was, a, was an amazing lacrosse player. And, yep. and he, he got to Cuse, uh, you know, in the early 80s, and he graduated actually in 87. That was actually Gary Gate, Paul Gates' freshman year. So yep. he, he looped with those guys for one year. When Coach Simmons brought in the Gates, 
that completely changed the game. And, and I've been following the game like religiously since then. So like, I, I can tell you pretty confidently like that we don't see stuff from the Powells or the Thompsons without the gates. And, and coach Simmons is, is the architect behind that because like he embraced the fact, like no one was running around fields with one hand back in the, in the late eighties, all midfielders had two hands would sweep down the alley and, you know, if you were a one-handed guy, you were kind of like a grunt guy. But, like, offensive players had two hands. They would play down the alley. You know, everything was from here. Where you had these these two Canadian brothers. And back then, there weren't Canadian midfielders in college lacrosse. There was a couple of guys that were from Canada that played attack. But, like, you get these horses now, six foot two, 205 pounds. Could have been, like, NFL football players if they grew up in the state of Texas. And they had the craziest stick skills you've ever seen. And now they start jumping behind goals and coach Simmons is like pushing them to do it. And they're trying these things in practice. And like, that's just was his mindset. Like he never, he never put you in a corner or told you you had to play a certain way. Like he was, he was incredible, man. Like outside of my dad, he's, he's 100% he's one of the most influential people in my, my life. And I, and I, I still keep in touch with him. I mean, I, I call a lot of, college football games and, and lacrosse games. And I've been up in the dome over the years coming back to, to call these types of games. I always meet up with coach Simmons. We go out for lunch or breakfast. And, and a lot of times he's 84 years old. A lot of times, you know, I'll drop him off at his house um, and we'll be in, we'll be in his driveway for another two hours and just wrap. And like, Talking. honestly, the, the two hours feels like five minutes. So like, to have a coach like that, it's, it's not, it's not normal. And uh, I, I just feel like he was above his time in terms of like connecting with humans. Uh, he's, he's the kind of guy, like he's a storyteller, you know, like, you know, I have, I have two kids and when we'd go up to like Lake Placid, he would, he would bring like jewelry for my daughter who's 10 now, but like if she was four, he'd bring her a necklace. Like who thinks of that stuff? Yeah. So going back to your freshman year, what was kind of that aha moment uh, that fall your freshman year that you were like, oh, they, this isn't high school ball. Like, I got to kind of step it up. Was there an exact uh, moment that you remember? Yeah, like, yeah, I think, well, it was, it was a period of time. Like, I just remember, I remember, like, so when I was in high school, I played with this guy, Rob Cavabit, who, who actually went to Syracuse with me. He was my boy since we were in nursery school. And we went to Q's together. And um, he was an attackman, and I was an attackman in, in, in high school as well. And I played off ball and played the, the righty wing, and he would feed me. And, you know, I would dodge, anyone could dodge in high school, too. I just remember, like, the fall of my freshman year saying to myself, like, okay, you're, you're a good shooter. Like, I had, a, I had a hard shot. I was one of the hardest shooters on the team. And I remember trying a couple times, like, to, to play the high school dodging role and trying to do a little bit of everything. I, I remember saying to myself, like, this isn't going to work, man. Like I gotta, I gotta play to my strengths. I can't try to like be the, the attackman that can do a little bit of everything. And, and then I remember establishing my, my shot even more. And I was getting some reps with, with the, with the man up my freshman year and in practice and like the first guy off to, to jump in there and, and do those kinds of things. And, and then I remember like finding a, a role in the, in the perimeter game more and playing to my strengths. And they actually moved me to midfield and, and I was able to to play quite a bit from from that point on. So I think I think the fall of my freshman year, I just I just realized to myself like, all right, this ain't high school anymore. Or like, 
you know, you're going to get some guy who's going to have a really, really bad approach on you and you could dodge and score. Like yeah. these guys were vicious. Like we had, we had three defensemen too that they literally would come at you so hard to, to almost to a point where like, I love these guys, but like we had, so we had Rick Beardsley, Hans Schmidt and Chad Smith. And Beardsley's from my hometown. I knew him really well. He, he's the type of guy that like, never stops barking and, and chirping. But the other two guys, you had to earn their respect. And when you were a freshman, they were juniors when I was a, a freshman, they would come at you and they would hack you late. They would do everything to make you feel uncomfortable, almost to retaliate or to make a scene. And it was, it was actually to the point where it was crazy. And then the following year, their seniors, like Casey Powell came in. He was one of the biggest recruits. In, in the history of Syracuse lacrosse, dude, man, the, that guy got beat, beat down every single day in practice by those two guys, and he never said a word. And that's the craziest thing, like, about the Powells wow. and the Gates and the Thompsons. I've never seen those guys really retaliate. And Casey took it like a man, and he earned their respect. They beat him senseless every day in practice. Like, his back would have welts on it. And, they, you know, he was one year behind me. We ended up being roommates for a couple of years. I'll just never forget, like, Hans Schmidt and Chad Smith made Casey Powell's freshman fall miserable. Whether he believes it or not, I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So, so graduating Cuse, how did you kind of get into broadcasting? Because you, you majored in political science? Yeah, political science. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, which, you know, that obviously didn't, didn't work out. So I went to Cuse and, you know, the, the, the Newhouse uh, Broadcasting School is one of the, the best in the in the country along with like Northwestern and a couple other ones. Um, and so many great broadcasters from Cuse, but like, honestly, Mitch, like I went to Cuse to major in lacrosse. Like that's, that's all I care about. Like that was everyone back given, in the day. I feel yeah. Like. You could have given me poli sci. Like dude, I was there to play lacrosse. I wanted to play for coach Simmons. Um, and I didn't really think about it. I wish someone like tapped me on the shoulder instead of, you know, one of those times you tapped me on the shoulder, he should have been like, go to Newhouse, right? <laughs> Maybe he should have said that instead of like, you know, you're going to dominate today. <laughs> so I didn't even like Newhouse. And honestly, I don't think there was a kid on our team in Newhouse. Like those are the smart kids in school. They, they went yeah. to Newhouse. So it didn't even dawn on me. So I graduated from Cuse and I ended up becoming a teacher and a coach when I was, you know, really young, like 23 years Fox old. Fox Lane, was, right? Yeah, I was teaching and coaching at Fox Lane. And, and that's the other thing with Coach Simmons, man. He was the best coach I ever played for, but he did not prepare me to be a coach because I, I had no clue how to do rise and clears. I just knew how to, like, coach individuals. I really knew the game in terms of just, like, some half-field schemes for a young guy. But, like, I really knew how to, like, tap into a player, right? Like, spend time with him to, to change his game, to tweak him, to push him. I, that was probably my strength as a young coach. But the full-field schemes, I was lost. So I actually had a, a – phys ed teacher in the district who played lacrosse at Springfield, this guy, Brian Dalton, who like majored in PE and like he knew how to ride in clear and he knew how to put all those kind of schemes in. So he used to come to practice. I'd like, I'd ride in clear and at Cuse. I'm not even kidding. Like we literally would like three minutes across. One of you guys has to go down. If one guy goes down, the other two go back. Like oh, that's what it was. So I'd look over, he's going down, I'm going up. Like it was, you know, we just balanced the field. It wasn't, we didn't spend time on rising players. We played full field practice every day. So I was totally unprepared to be a coach. And there was a guy from Cuse who was in Newhouse who I knew who covered the lacrosse team when I was, when I was at Cuse. Uh, he was at CSTV, which is CBS Sports. Um, 
as a as a studio host and there was a lacrosse analyst position open in 2004 and he recommended me to you know the person who deals with all the talent they call me up they're like hey do you want to you want to call a lacrosse game? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it sounds great. I've never done it before, but yeah, I'll give it a try. And I did Army Navy 2004. It's my first time ever doing a game. And, you know, I actually got to get my hands on that game because I'm, I'm sure I was dreadful. And I would try to do everything like, you know, great and tons of words. And what I've learned the most in the last 16, 17 years is just like, A, be yourself but just like breathe and like less is more. Right. So like, I was like, more is more. Right. So I like, you know, that's, that was my approach. I was decent enough where the following year they had a full season spot open. Um, and that's before ESPN was really doing a lot of, a lot of uh, regular season oh. games. And I went in for an audition with like four or five other dudes. And these guys were, you know, they, they had a lot of credentials too, but like, I remember I just like, I started really just listening to, people that off season that were calling college football and basketball and their cadence and how they would say things and how they would punch things. And I started really observing that. And I did well enough in the, uh, the audition to, to get that spot. And I did like 12 or 13 games. I did the whole season with Joe Beninati. He's a total pro and he's meticulous. And like, he's, this guy is so dedicated to his craft. So my first experience of like preparing for a game was with Joe Beninati. So that's all I knew. So that was the best thing that happened to me as a, as a first-year broadcaster on a full season in 2005 was working with Joe because I watched this guy prepare. I watched how he, he put in so much time watching tape and doing these things. And, you know, ever since then, I just – I absolutely loved it. And then one of my, uh, one of my bosses at the time uh, moved over to ESPN. And then a couple of years later, there were was, there was some opportunities for me there. So for the last – this would have been my 11th season – if, if we closed it out with ESPN and it's been it's been awesome and, and that kind of led to other opportunities too because you know I'm not a trained broadcaster I'm learned on the fly and just a lot of reps and um, by by trying things and doing a lot of you know different things within sports other opportunities opened up outside of lacrosse I started calling college football games um, you know probably nine years ago and and, and that's been awesome too. And I, I just feel like the more, the more versatile you can be in, in, in your craft, the better you are because opportunities can, can come when you're least expected. I like, I never asked to do college football. They, you know, they approached me, Hey, you think you'd want to try this? I'm like, yeah, that'd be awesome. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's like most businesses, man. It's about hard work. It's about really connecting with people and, and being confident in who you are, man. Like, I, I'm not trying to be anyone else. I'm trying to trying to be myself. Um, if you hung out with me off camera, I, I'd be the same way. Same you know? person. I, I love I that. Have, I, I have, like, a, a loud Italian type of, <laughs> of, of, of personality, you know? That's just the way that I grew up. And, and, and I don't really care what, what really anyone, anyone says negatively. Like, negative noise doesn't bother like if I'm calling a game and someone tweets at me that like you know I'm muting you go ahead mute my god you know as long as I know I'm working hard as long as I know I'm respecting the game and ultimately in college sports like I'm elevating I'm elevating athletes and telling their stories the storytelling to me like you know my podcast and the series that I do all those things are equally if not more important to me than the actual games because 
if I can tell stories, when I call games, I'm better equipped to give you, the viewer, a reason to watch, right? Like if I know more about you by a story I told or, 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 or having you on like some of these digital series that I do with ESPN, it's easier for me, it's easier for me to, to give a viewer a reason to root for you. Like that's ultimately what we want to do in college sports. Like give me a reason to root for Mitch Belton. Like who is he? Like, so if he is scoring goals and we know he can score goals, we know he's a great lacrosse player, but your backstory and, and how you're chasing a, a career and in, in, in media and in, in the, in the things that you're doing, like, like people like to hear that you, you humanize before you analyze to me. Like, um, one of my bosses, John Vassell, told me that years ago. And it, to me, it, it's like, it's always it's that and one other thing that I'll tell you is stuck in my mind all the time. Like when, when I call games, humanizing is more important than analyzing. Like humanize before you analyze. So make someone connect with that person on a human level. And, and then the other thing too is like when I'm breaking down games, I always try to remind myself, to tell the viewer like how and why it happened. Like if you're getting into the X's and O's part, I know you just took an incredible shot or Trey Leclerc just ripped a 95 mile an hour shot yeah. right underneath the, the upper 90. How and why it happened, right? Like mm -hmm. what did he do with his feet? Did he do something different from his last shot to the one that he just scored with the goalie? So he gets that guy thinking like, those are where my, my, my brain goes or, or how my head spins. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a, as the viewer, you never really think of how much in depth you guys go with it. You know, one thing I really wanted to ask, you know, watching uh, kind of your senior year on YouTube uh, with the games and people broadcasting them, your, your 1997 senior season, uh, one of the games, I forget, uh, it was some guy in Quint broadcasting. How crazy is that, that when you were in college, Quint was broadcasting your games and now you guys are doing it side by side? You know, it's, it's funny you say that. So like, probably two or three months ago, someone sent me, and I, you know, this is a good reminder, Mitch, too, because like, I want to, I want to show the, show the boys this too. It, that to me was like one of those moments, I'm looking through my phone right now, one of those moments that like kind of hit me in regards to like, like full circle, right? Yeah, I've worked circle, with Quint yeah. now for like the, I worked with Quint for the last I mean, 10 years and it's just crazy. I have the video of him introducing, like, me, Casey Powell, like, they call yeah, us the arms Yeah, there's crush. three. There's, yeah, there's three yeah. He's yeah, got so that, I have that. He's got the and, wrinkly and, button down on. And the, and the funny, yeah, and the funny, and terrible hair. Uh, <laughs> and and the, the, the funny thing is, like, they, they roll some video of me, and they show, like, one of the few lefty goals. That, like, I probably scored fewer lefty goals than Trey LeClaire has. Like, how many lefty goals <laughs> has Trey LeClaire had? Not a lot. Not a lot. I, I only had a handful. Like I actually have a pretty good left hand. I just didn't feel comfortable. Like just the way that I played. I don't know. Um, standing still, I would never shoot lefty. On the run, I felt comfortable. Just the way that the body works and, and the mechanics. And they were rolling video of of me scoring in the final four the year before against Princeton, like a lefty jump shot. And I was busting Quint because he he sold the crowd on the video or with the viewers uh, that I have a big lefty shot. Like, I'm like, yo, Quinn, how much tape did you watch? Cause like the producer and the director gave you that video of me, like on a package wise shooting lefty. So you just assumed like, come on, man, if you watch tape, yeah. you knew I wasn't a lefty. Oh, lefty. Yeah. That's funny. That's crazy how it all worked out. 
So kind of going um, to your series here, what would you say is your, your favorite series you've done? Is, is it through the X, relaxing with Peacock in the car or, or cutting hair? What would you say is your favorite? Ah, uh, that's a good question, man. Oh, they're all different. Like if I, if I had to yeah. break down, okay, I'll, like I'll, I'll break down something about each, like the relaxing with Peacock in the, in the car, a lot of people could be like, yo, gong show, whatever. Like, like I, I liked it. It was a good idea. I, I dude, I loved it. I'll do that a hundred times again. If I had that opportunity for me, that idea came, um, on a chairlift in Utah in like December before that next lacrosse season. I'm just like, you know what, man? Like I love calling games, but I feel like no one tells stories in lacrosse to support our games. Like a game comes on the air we call it and it's done. I wanted to add value for halftime for Rollins. And I just said to myself, like, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to start telling more stories. Like, I want to know more about a kid. Like, you know, where he's from, his family, his background, you know, highs and lows. And, and I, I felt like that would be a, a really cool opportunity. So I started that and I had guys from, from Pat Spencer to Ben Reeves to Trevor Baptiste to Rambo and Heacock. And like, yeah. I, I feel like mission accomplished. Like, all right, we, we were able to, to tell a story in a, in a more relaxed atmosphere. Now I will tell you this too. Some dudes like that. I didn't know they pulled into the car and they were like a little freaked out because they were dealing with the camera and dealing with me. And like, you know, they knew that it would go on air and, it was, it was a little bizarre in some ways, mm -hmm. but ultimately mission accomplished. And I tried something and I moved it over to the haircuts because I started seeing a lot of car interviews. And like, yeah. to me, I just, I want to do something that's different. So then I struggled and I said, what am I going to do, man? I did these car ones. And I'm like, whoa, I've been cutting hair since I'm in, you know, I'm in fifth grade. I, I've cut hundreds of heads. Like I, I had clippers when I was a little kid and cut everyone in the neighborhood, lacrosse players in college. I cut a lot of hair. So like, I, I really know how to cut hair, scissors, everything. It fades everything. So um, actually when I was at Ohio state, I gave, I gave coach Myers a haircut. Yeah, yeah. So to me, I was like, this is unique. This is cool. I'm going to cut people's hair while I do the interview. So that kind of just happened naturally because I didn't want to do car interviews anymore just because they were, they were too prevalent. We saw them start seeing them everywhere. Um, but, but to answer your question, the relaxing series to me gave me a window into telling stories that could support our game. So that's what was good and made me feel like fulfilled in, in that light. The podcast to me is like the purest form of uh -oh. telling a story because you're not up against a gun. Like I, I, I'm not worried about like, how's the edit going to be like, Oh, he's, Oh, that's a great answer. Can you say that again? Like how weird is it? It's like, yo, that was awesome. But like, can you say it again? And then I have to sit there and like, yo, what it, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yes. it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. So like yeah. The, the podcast to me, like is the purest form of a conversation in a long form storytelling type atmosphere. And I love that. Like I'm not against a gun. If a podcast, I always try to get them kind of in an hour range. If it goes an hour and 10, so be it. If it's 43 minutes, so be it. I want to tell the story. I have a few things in mind that I really want to get to, but at the end of the day, I want that person speaking. 
the fewer words I have in questions, oftentimes the better the answers are, right? If I just tell you like, if I knew you had a moment in time in your life that was so hard, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like make this question so robust and then ask it. I'm just gonna really just honestly say like, we just call it item X for argument's sake, like describe what was going through your mind during item X, right? Like, and I let you talk. Uh, so I love the podcast in, in that way. The through X stuff is super cool because it allows, I think, kind of a combination of on field and story, right? Like you have a you have a a person that's being introduced. He has a, a ridiculous skill set, um, but you're also intertwining it with his story and what he means to not only that program but the bigger picture of college lacrosse. So that's super cool too, and. You know, when, when the when the quarantine hit, I wasn't going to sit home and do nothing, man. I can't. So I started this, you know, four, uh, four quarters with Clark. And, and to me, that's just a, that's like a quicker way to, to get to know people. And, and it's fun. And, and, I, and I think that everyone walks away just knowing a little bit more about a person. Like I did one last week that aired with, with Sergio Perkovic. I realized like, all right, this dude's a, this dude's a model and he's yeah. obviously – really proud to be a model and I think that's super cool because the pictures he sent me were like real model pictures right like he had like the you know he was <laughs> he was he was all in so I thought it was super cool man I'm I'm into people that are comfortable in their own skin are confident and are proud of what they do and you know whether it's Sergio Perkovic or you know coach Amplo you know did a piece with him that's airing this week. He's the Navy coach. I, I thought it was so cool about how he got acclimated into like Navy life, right? Like here's a guy that's like a Italian guy from Long Island who never had any service experience at all. And, you know, he's telling stories about how he's saluting the wrong people the first day on campus. And, <laughs> you know, the assistant coach uh, is, is throwing up when they're on a, uh, a, a fighter jet type tour and just little things like that. Like, he, and then you learn about his family and, you know, that I had uh, later on in the week, you'll see his his college teammate, his best friend is Kevin Warren, who's the coach at uh, at Georgetown. And I had him surprise jump into the into the interview and, and, and that would cool. be cool to air too. So like, they're, they're all a little different. Um, but the more that I do those, the better I am at, at actually being a game analyst because I always find ways naturally when I'm not thinking about it to, to tell those stories um, that deserve to be humanized before analyzed. Yeah. So talking about through the X, um, the one you do with Jules, I saw you had a sick pair of Jordan off-white ones. You know, where did the kind of the, the, the shoe obsession come from? Oh, I wish you would have told me, man. I would have gone out into the garage and showed you. The shoe, uh, the no. shoe collection's in the garage? Yeah, but I have them on racks. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're all racked. I'm, I'm a neat freak, man. Like I'm a neat freak. I'm definitely anal retentive. Uh, yeah, they're all and they're, and they're, they're categorized by like high tops, low tops. Like, yeah, I think I'm, it's dialed in. Yeah. I don't have like the, I, I definitely have enough closet space, but I also have a bunch of dress shoes too. So dress shoes live in my closet, in my bedroom, sneakers. And that goes for the kids too. My kids have racks. Like, Okay. Don't come in the house with dirty shoes on. Put it on the rack, you know, rack, or, yeah. or, or, you know, beat it. So the shoe accept, uh, obsession, you know, to me, I look at it this way. You could have the sickest suit in the world. If you have bad shoes and a bad belt, you look like a clown. 
Brutal. You could have a bad suit, okay, that just it fits okay, but it's not like a high-end Slim suit. Fit, with the, yeah. yeah, you just get, you know, you get, a, you get a suit that fits you and you spent no money on it. If you have a sick belt and six shoes, you'll win the day, right? So, like, to me, okay. I, I've always felt like your shoes are really, really important when, you, when you're dressed up and you're dressed down. And the fact of the matter is, like, I wear jeans, I wear hoodies a lot. And I feel like if I have a nice pair of sneakers on, it's gonna it's gonna work. So I just I've, I've always loved them. And then and then as I got older, actually, I started getting more and more into shoes. So like I have, man, if I didn't give the ones that I was done and over with, and I don't beat up the shoes, I give them to my brothers and my friends. I'd have a I'd have a ton a ton of shoes, but I like to keep it like tight, man. I don't want like. 500 shoes i want like 25 really good ones and then when a new one comes in i'm pitching an old one you ever thought about kind of doing like a, like a tour of your collection because i feel like the fans would love that yeah i mean I, I would i would do it so like i have you know i have multiple uh off-white jordan ones i got the travis scott's i got the jordan cements you know i've got uh i've got so many dunks I got some. I got some good ones, man. I got. Some That's good cool ones. to I'll hear. I'll send you some pictures. That's sick, cause like my dad doesn't know anything about shoes and like swag like that. He's so like old money, and it's cool to hear. Like you have forty. But he's wearing a blazer and, and and khakis and penny loafers. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't do that. I'm. You know, I'm at the age I probably should. But like, who's to tell me? Cause I'm forty four. I can't. You know, I can't wear a pair of basketball sneakers. Um, you know what I like too? I like the Nike blazers. I got a couple of custom ones of those. Those are cool. Yeah. The sneakers to me are, you know, and they always have to be really, really clean. One thing that I won't get, you won't, you won't find me oftentimes finding a pair of sneakers that the bottom of the sole is white. I'm not down with that. Cause that gets like, that. like what about like the gross. icy sole? Like the, like the, you don't like that? Not, get, not then it gets much, yellow. Man. Yeah, it gets yellow. So, like, I, I'll i look at the bottom of the soles. Like, you know, the side of the sole could be white. I'm totally cool with that. I cleaned that up. But if the bottom of the sole is white, that gets all, like, ugh, gets all skunky. You, you ever rock, uh, like, a suit with some Jordans? Or no? If it's suit, it's got to be dress shoes. Yeah, like, a suit would be dress shoes. But I would wear, uh, like, I would do blazer with, like, a pair of pants and a, and a pair of sneakers for sure. Like, I've done that. I did that this year with the, with the Nike Blazers. Um, yeah, de I definitely would, would, would wear a pair of, of sneakers with, with, a, with a pair of dress shoes, jeans, and a blazer type thing, but never with a suit, no. Like suit, it's no. a suit, no way, no way. Okay. So kind of going back to uh, the recruiting, recruiting aspect, do you think – so I'm 20 now. If I had kids in like 15 years, do you think when my kids – Will have when when they have the opportunity to go through the recruiting process. Do you think Pac-12 and SEC schools will have Division One lacrosse? Wow, it's a great question. You know, if you asked me that question like six months ago or a year ago, I, I'd probably be really bullish on it. I just don't know what the back end of this is going to look like, right? Like, I just think there's going to be a lot of a lot of situations where, you know, athletic departments might not have the budget um, in two years that they thought they would, right? Like when they were projecting a five-year plan a couple of years ago, there, there might've been, and I don't have any like real knowledge of this. I'm just, just as a human and observing what's going on in the world right now. 
feel like athletics is a lot like every other business. I don't think there's going to be an influx of spending. I think the, 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 the purse is going to be smaller and, and people are going to be less, you know, less inclined to, to spend, spend, spend. But I think the, the focus is going to be more on like cutting costs and saving. I would hope by the time that your kids are, are up in the ranks and, and, and ready to, to ball in college that, that the, the world will, will be certainly back. And I'm, I'm hoping the world's back in, in no time, man. I'm a very optimistic person, like I said. And I want, I want greatness for the sport of lacrosse. I want exposure. You told me the Pac-12 and the, the SEC were getting into lacrosse. I'd be, I'd be the, the happiest guy around. Uh, I just think in the next few years, that's going to be really tough because I, I, I think that the, the fallout of all this is, is going to put some strain on some budgets. Uh, but I would say, uh, you know, five, 10, 15 years, let's, let's, let's think that, uh, that things could be in a totally different realm than today in 2020. Uh, but I think, I, I think it was trending that way, Mitch, for, for certain. Like if you look at, you know, Michigan came to the forefront seven, eight years ago, and then Utah. And, and I say Michigan and Utah because those are big conference schools, schools like as yeah. great as it is that like high point Furman and richmond all came to, to division one lacrosse and it's awesome don't get me wrong when a michigan who's in the in the big 10 or a utah who's in the pac-12 when they decide to get in lacrosse that tells me something you know it, it allows the big 10 just to go after one affiliate member to have a real conference right and johns hopkins is, is an affiliate member you have five five legit all sport members of the, of the big 10 and then Johns Hopkins who's there just for lacrosse. So now you have a real conference, Utah and the PAC 12, as hard as it is for Utah to get into to men's lacrosse, that second and third school will be just as hard, if not harder. And once that comes to fruition, I think you're going to see a snowball effect. It's like the women's lacrosse. They have a, a yeah. legit full PAC 12, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Arizona state, Oregon, Stanford, USC, they have, they have women's lacrosse. That's amazing for, for, for a young girl to be able to, to think like I have a daughter who's 10 and she's super into lax. And like, if she's good enough one day and she can think about West coast schools, I mean, how awesome is that for a kid? Yeah, that's sweet. And, and, and if that happens and, or maybe when, do you think these blue chip schools like Maryland and, and Hopkins will still be top tier schools? I do. I do. Like, I think, I think what you'll see is you'll see like, you know, a program like Maryland who, who went to seven of the last 10 final fours, they're not going anywhere. Just like Alabama football doesn't go anywhere, but the, the level of dominance is a lot harder to achieve. And we actually, we've seen it in, in recent years. When I was at Syracuse, I was in the middle of a, of a run of 22 straight final fours. Yeah. As crazy as that sounds, our teams never would have been able to pull that off in today's day and age. Never. Like you would have gotten tripped up, you know, every couple of years and just, there's no way that would have happened. So we've already seen it, but Syracuse will always have tradition. Just like Ohio state has tradition in football and, and, and Stanford has tradition in volleyball and, you know, Arizona state has wrestling or swimming or whatever. Like those, those programs don't change Oklahoma state wrestling. Like you, you could find, you can find schools and, you know, in, in, in every sport in hockey, you know, the, 
the Wisconsin's of the world and Michigan, like those schools have always had great hockey programs. I think like lacrosse wise, Maryland's not going anywhere, but if, if we have West coast schools like Stanford and USC and men's lacrosse, is Maryland going to get seven out of 10 final fours? Probably not. They'll get chipped up more. Maybe, maybe a good deal for them would be four out of 10, right? Because you're going to have to find, you're going to have to find room for some of these programs because if Stanford and USC get men's lacrosse, I mean, they're going to attract high end type coaches recruits are going to want to go there just like they want to go there for USC women's lacrosse. I mean, they've had the, the number one recruit in the country attend their school before in women's lacrosse. Mm-hmm. So like, you're going to get that. Um, and, and look, I sit here as a Syracuse lacrosse fan. We've been to one final four in 10 years. You know, like I'm a realist knowing that like, that's still not good enough, right? Like that's not good enough. And I think every kid on the team would tell you the same thing, but I'm realistic to think that like the 22 straight, in a row like some of my buddies are, are totally lost that they think they should be in the final four every year like why aren't we winning championships like hello look at the landscape but yeah. you know one one is a little light like it, it should be two or three maybe yeah okay sweet so kind of working towards our last segment here called quick talk on pelk talk i'm gonna give you a short word or phrase um and you're gonna give me a quick response cool you ready yeah i'm ready all right, first one, food. Meatballs. Your four Mount Rushmore broadcasters ever. Ooh, I like that. Um, I'm going to go with Keith Jackson. Oh, Nelly. I love Vern Lundquist, man. I thought he was he was so, so good. A fourth one. Hmm. Man, fourth one. I'm going to go a little – I'm going to go a little off the grid just because – just because I think this guy is who he is from an authentic standpoint. I, I, I think Dickie V, man. I got to get Yeah, Dickie that's v. what I was going to say. I got to get Dickie V. Because honestly, like, I've worked with people who work with him. He's the same person in life. And that yeah. means a lot to me. That's awesome. Okay, next one. Worst lacrosse saying? Uh, let's see. Worst lacrosse saying? Step to greatness by Quint. <laughs> <laughs> the extra if- step to greatness. And, and you know why? Because I, I actually applaud him. I think it's kind of a cool term, but so many people have ripped it off that it's just – If not Syracuse, then? North Carolina. Most underrated lacrosse player ever? Rob Cavavit. I mentioned him earlier. I grew up with him. We were teammates and co-captains. One of four players in Cuse with 125 goals, 120 assists. The other three are the three pals. So, enough said. Because yeah. you probably don't okay. know who Rob Cavavit is, do you? Yeah, no, I don't. There you go. Uh, biggest chirper you've ever played against? I would say Dan Radabaugh from Maryland. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Brian Doherty, the goalie yeah, from Maryland. Say, out of yeah. control, man. Out of control. Favorite team to broadcast? Well, I, I love going back to the Dome, but my favorite team to broadcast? I kind of like Yale now. Really? Yeah, because they, they chirp a little. There's something to them. Yeah. There's, oh, my there's God. Edge. Every guy I've had on here said that. Said Yale, the Yale chirps. The Yale chirps. Oh, my God. Oh, Yale chirps. But I, I just kind of like how they're kind of defying the whole Ivy Ivy mantra. You know, Cuse will always be, but I, I kind of kind of have to go in a different direction there. Like, I like being at Cuse, but I like calling Yale. I love I love going down to, to Raleigh-Durham, too. Carolina and Duke are fun. Favorite person to broadcast a game with? Mike Golick, Jr. Favorite pair of shoes you own? I'm really into 
uh, the the Travis Scott Jordan ones I have. Yeah. I really like those. The, the, the color, everything. It, it just worked. They work for me. Last question. You're 44 now. Where do you see yourself in five years? Five years. Hopefully I'm doing the same thing I'm doing because I feel like in life that you should only do stuff that you, you want because I'm, I'm at the halfway point, man. If I live to 90, that would be pretty, pretty sweet. But I think I want to be doing the same thing, but I want to reinvent myself in, in terms of the way that I tell stories and the way that I get behind athletes. Sweet. Well, that's it here, folks, on Pelk Talk. My guy, Paul Carcaterra, thanks for showing out. Where can the fans find you at? They can find me on uh, Twitter, at Paul Carcaterra, and Instagram's the same thing, man. My, my Instagram and, and Twitter game is it's just okay. It's not, as, it's not like yours or anything, but – We'll do. We'll keep plugging yeah. away. I'm going to try to stay young. There we go. I love that. Well, you guys can find this as a YouTube video, which you're probably watching right now, or as a podcast at the podcast app for Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, every podcast app. But that's a wrap here, Paul. I really appreciate you coming out again. Yeah, that was fun, man. We'll do it again.